So this is Lee Edwards with the Chicago Defender, and we're here speaking with two community activists in terms of education. Ladies, would you please introduce yourselves? Hi, my name is Chanel Bell. I'm a community organizer and adjunct professor, and I help run a uh, ECE nonprofit called Play Smart Literacy. Nice. I'm Jay Jenkins. I am also a community organizer, former educator, um, and I also organize, voluntarily organize for an organization um, that uh, that works with or works advocates for educational equity. Sorry, <laughs> I, I work with that organization too, yeah. and I'm also a former teacher. Yes. Oh wow! Wow. Lots of things. <laughs> Lots of things. Yeah. So, ladies, can you tell me about how you first got into community organizing on behalf of students and education? Yeah, I could start. Or you could start. It's up to you. All right, so I'll go first. So this is Jade. Um, so my background in organizing is pretty interesting. So I actually come from uh, a family of organizers. So my great uncle on my mother's side was an activist during the civil rights movement, and he was one of the main people responsible for desegregating the Los Angeles Music Union. His name was William Buddy Colette, and he was a jazz musician. Um, on my dad's side, my aunts were organizing down in some Sunflower County, Mississippi, with Fannie Lou Hammer, um, registering African Americans to vote. And so, coming from that background, that history, and yeah, my aunts actually they w became educators, and so did my great uncle. Um, I always knew I had it in me. It's something that like my family uh, encouraged me to do. Um, and after. I moved to Chicago and was teaching. Um, I was just distraught, terrified, amazed, shocked by the state of public education and felt like teaching, I wasn't able to affect change on the level I wanted to in just a classroom. Um, and so I decided I wanted to get into policy advocacy and organizing. And so that's how I got started initially. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so I also have a lot of family members who were in organizing in different capacities. Most of them were organizing for volunteer, uh, volunteer organizers in civil rights movements, um, movement. Uh, and so I had that embedded in my blood as well. I got into organizing through education. I worked at an um, a CBO that was in CHA complexes. And so I actually had access to uh, the families of the students I served because they lived on top of me, behind me, across, mm -hmm. across the street, all around. And with that kind of unique situation, I was able to really develop relationships with these uh, families and go into their homes and give them resources and make sure that I was connecting them with wraparound services. And so through my two years of teaching, I actually was organizing on top of teaching and I didn't really know that that's what I was doing. I didn't really understand um, organizing as just as a job you get paid to do. Mm -hmm. I was always <laughs> told and um, was around organizers who did it because it's the right thing to do. It's what you do for your community. And so when I was thinking about what kind of work I wanted to transition into after I decided I wanted to leave the classroom, I found out, no, you can actually get paid to be an organizer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was really excited about it because that's the kind of community work I wanted to do. And so now I'm here. Awesome. Awesome. So one of the things that really stands out to me about community organizing and particularly in the classroom, 
is about working with families where they are and trying to get students to the next level. We've heard a lot over the years through different media outlets about passing students along from grade to grade and not them not really achieving the education that they need to achieve. What is it like to see a student who's maybe in high school or further along that doesn't have the raw skills to survive outside of childhood? You can start that off. <laughs> that's that's loaded. Yeah. It's a loaded question um, because you see that not just in Chicago but everywhere. It's really tragic. Uh, uh, one, there's a there's multi layers to this mm-hmm. very large cake. Um, one is the lack of resources that are actually given to the the teachers to do their job, right? Um, teachers do need a certain amount of resources and support to be able to educate their kids effectively. It doesn't matter how amazing a teacher is, if they don't have support from their, their school, if they don't have the resources they need to do um, to do their work, then it's not going to get done, right? And then if you don't have any resources for them, if their students are not actually meeting the expectations to actually implement um, an intervention, then what else, what other choice do they have, right? And oftentimes teachers are looking at um, a, a situation where they'll be fired if they don't have all their, their students go on to the next level. And so there's a threat level and a lack of support that's happening around teachers in general. And so that's disgusting and needs to change because now our teachers are being inauthentic and when they're grading or when they're passing things along because they think about their livelihood, their job being taken away from them because there's no other resources that are available for them to actually help these kids. Um, the second of the the second layer to that is wraparound services. They exist. The South Side is full and rich with community organizations that can actually help families. Um, a lot of the problems I've seen with truancy is because you're not actually getting to what the issue is at home. And so a lot of my job is really just informing all these families, hey, did you know there's a community organization down the street from where you live that could help you with the situation that's making your child become truant? Mm-hmm. Like that's that, that can change someone's lives. Um, so really knowing what resources are around and available to you really is helpful in that issue as well yeah and like Chanel said this is a complex like complex situation I know as a teacher when you have a student in your classroom who's three or four grade levels behind it's heartbreaking Mm -hmm. and then being in that situation you're expected to teach that student and hopefully help them grow two or three grade levels in one year which and while also making sure you're helping kids on grade levels grow um, which is an insane challenge. So if you don't have that support, it's 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 an almost impossible task. I think from it's interesting because um, I learned about the aging out policy here, which I think is you could say it's good or bad. But I you have students who have been retained and they're too old, so they they just have to move on, and there's nothing you can do. Um, I think from a school's perspective, a lot of them feel pressure to graduate students. Um, when it affects their rating um, and perf- schools are being judged by their discipline policy. So if you're constantly retaining kids, it looks bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, it's super, super complex. But I know from my perspective as a teacher, it was um, extremely challenging, especially if I didn't have supports like aides and a special education teacher that um, had the time to, you know, commit to helping those students who need it the most. Mm-hmm. 
And on top of that, I just want to add this is it becomes even more uh, life or death for our black boys, Um, black girls as well. But specifically our black boys with the data statistics that they're that they do have available in terms of if you are not educating a black boy um, at the level they need to be to be successful in the next grade, then it's behavior issues mm-hmm. i'm quoting putting quotation marks yeah. um air start air quotation marks <laughs> um can arise and all of a sudden this the student who um maybe is not being challenged or there's they're su- they're suffering with one subject and really just needs that extra attention is mm-hmm. now being put in a remedial class yeah. um and then they are far behind farther behind than they already were and there's no this catch up catch up game game is not designed for black boys to be successful in and so then you have a situation where these black boys are aging out and they're just getting pushed 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 and then they drop out and it's like oh oh my god it's so horrible that this boy dropped out and I'm like well what did our system do to to make him successful exactly Mm -hmm. and um this is like needs to be talked about a lot more um in terms of support for teachers because there's it's a it's a multi-layer thing right um if they don't have the support they need in the classroom then it's easier to just write write a little black boy off and put him in a class that he's not supposed to be in. And that affects the rest of his life. Exactly. And there needs, yeah, these safety nets and interventions, like, is there a counselor, social worker? They're like, all these things need to be in place. And if a school doesn't have that, then yeah, they, those children are the ones labeled as the problem, air quotes, um, (laughs) challenging air quotes. Um, And in my experience as a teacher, a lot of it is they just needed some extra attention um, and when I built the relationship with those students and there was trust there, I could get them to, you know, do their work and say, and support them. And if I spent like extra time during my prep, that made all the difference. Um, so it, that is complicated though. Yeah. If, it, a, student, it, if a student's in fourth grade and can't yeah. read, I would be frustrated <laughs> too. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Like you have to understand where that frustration comes from. Exactly. I had, when I taught preschool, I had a little black boy, he was five years old, who was nonverbal and severely autistic. He shouldn't have been in my classroom without a para, but that's another subject. <laughs> um, but he, he would be violent. And he was, I understood his violence and um, was because he was frustrated that he could not communicate. He couldn't tell me I need to go to the bathroom. He couldn't tell me that I'm hungry. He couldn't play with the other kids the same way. Mm -hmm. And so as a teacher, I had to educate myself and be aware that he's not trying to hurt me. He's not being violent because he's trying to hurt me. He's being violent because he's frustrated because he can't communicate. And that kind of understanding needs to be embedded in all teachers because we have these kids who are frustrated that they can't count as well as their their student next to them or they can't read or write the same level. And it's not their fault. It's because the teachers or the system has failed them previously before they got to this grade. And you understand, need to understand where that frustrating fr- frustration or air quotes attitude or whatever labels people want to put on our kids are coming from so you can fix the root of the problem and not the symptom. Awesome. You mentioned, you both highlighted a lot of great points, but can you take me into what it's like to walk into the classroom for that first day or that first year? Because often <laughs> enough we hear... I'm terrifying. We hear <laughs> that... We need the best teachers. We need more money for schools. We need more support. 
But as someone outside looking in, it seems very hard. And so if I were to be the best prepared teacher possible and I walk into that classroom without the resources, what does it look like on that first day or for that first few months even? What if I told you that you can't be prepared? Right? I was confused. Not <laughs> the best prepared. What? There, no. There's no such thing. Um, no. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I can start, I guess. Um, so, one, you have to just get rid of the whole being prepared walking into the classroom. Um, nothing can really prepare you for being responsible for a child's education and thus their future. That is huge and there's nothing that can prepare you for that not even motherhood can prepare you for that because you are responsible for your own seed no you're responsible for all of these children who could be potential authors journalists doctors lawyers or if you fail them could be out on the street and that's that's on you like that's huge. Mm. Um, so I did not. I I, I had this false understanding mm-hmm. of what preparedness would be like or feel like, and so I definitely felt like I had an air of oh I can do this coming into the classroom, even though it was lit underneath it was fear. I did have this understanding that I was ready, and after that first day, after that first hour, <laughs> I realized. Um, I was not. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to address that as yeah. well. Uh, but it is hard. It's been hard ever since teaching was a thing. <laughs> like, it didn't just get hard. It's always been hard. Um, and and so I taught preschool, so I know my experience was very different than Jade's experience. But there is this huge word gap that starts from birth. And so what you do in preschool really does shape where they're going to go for the rest of their career. And having so many black boys and black girls, I I really wanted to make sure I was fostering um, pride in themselves Mm -hmm. because the next teacher that they have uh, might not look like them, might not have an understanding of their culture or their background, might not think that they're as beautiful as they are. And so I really tried to foster that into them as well because within that comes confidence. So if you are being taught something new, but you know you are capable, you know you are bright, you know you are beautiful, then you are more accepting of of trying to learn this new thing. But if you are not, if you don't have that self-esteem built within yourself, then when you see something new, automatically fear, automatically you're going to shut down. And then those symptoms of air quotes, attitudes, air quotes, like challenging child comes, um, comes out. Mm -hmm. So I really like, understanding that um as a ECE teacher it's it's really it's it's heavy what's the acronym I'm sorry oh early childhood education is ECE yeah. okay sorry the education world has so many acronyms yes um, yes so for me you're making me dig into some repressed memories and feelings um so like again I don't think you can be prepared I try to be prepared by reading this book teach like a champion and let me tell you it didn't help. Um, you did my, not teach like a ta- champion? No, I was terrible, um, like many first-year teachers are. Um, my kids, like, so there's a saying that, you know, the, there's like a honeymoon phase of teaching, like the first couple weeks, and then October's the rough month. My kids came at me hard, day one. So, yeah, within that first hour, I was like, 
oh lord what did i get myself into what class did you teach what years um what years was i teaching 2014 2015 and then grade oh great oh, sorry. So, sorry sixth grade i was teaching literacy centers so i was doing a lot of small groups mm-hmm. um and then i taught sixth grade ela and then i taught eighth grade humanities so social studies and then eighth grade ela um, okay. but my first year was rough um and I, I thought I was prepared, and it wasn't until that first day that I realized, wow, um, I'm, I'm terrible at this. Um, and so, yeah, I, I kind of just piggybacking on everything Chanel said. I don't think there's anything you can do to be like the prepared teacher. It's a lot of pressure um, having being responsible for 28 or 30 um, people calling you Miss Jenkins, and like you have ownership and control over their, you know, future. And I felt so much pressure, especially because um, I was learning about how complex the high school enrollment process was here. And and so um, when I was teaching seventh or sixth grade and then eighth grade, I was like, wow, like I need to make sure I'm preparing you for that next step. Because if I don't, you're going to struggle, Uh, which a lot of kids, if you just look at the data, like um, the consortium uh, has researched the transition from eighth to ninth. And there is a drop, and so I, I felt tremendous pressure to make sure my kids were learning um, and growing, and so, yeah. Yeah. That covers it, yeah. And also to piggyback off of that is um, when you're teaching preschool, you are that student's first teacher forever. Well, Aww. second teacher, um, because I really believe parents are a child's first teacher. So mm-hmm. I'll say second teacher forever. Like no one's ever taken that spot from you. And so you are introducing a child into the education world. What you do in those years are going to determine how that child feel, um, views education or school. Mm-hmm. And so that's a, another heavy load. And then the parents, you're also informing and educating the parents because a lot of my parents, these, this was their first child. Mm-hmm. And so they have never had a complete stranger watch and educate their child before. And there was varying uh, degrees of education levels for my parents as well. So we had parents that weren't really proficient readers. So I had to explain everything that they were signing in in a more detailed way than I would anybody else. And so with that kind of insecurity that can arise with that and you are educating their child, there was a very interesting dynamic that I didn't even know that I had to be prepared for because of my background. And so that privilege, like there's so many levels of privilege. Privilege isn't just money. Privilege is learning, knowing how to read. Exactly. Privilege is knowing how to write. Um, and so I had to learn those different levels of privilege as well to be able to educate effectively because uh, you are always taught it's black and white. It's mm-hmm. money, not money, you know, um, money poor. Um, so it was... <laughs> No, not prepared. <laughs> I, I felt too a lot of pressure for my with my first year because I was one of three black teachers who taught in that sixth grade, and that was um, we were their first black teachers. And even though I was teaching in a black neighborhood, this is the first time that they had a black teacher that was not a paraprofessional. Mm. So like um, that, is, <laughs> go ahead, educator. <laughs> um, <laughs> You can go ahead. Oh, yeah. So paraprofessionals <laughs> are their supports. Um, they're not like licensed teachers, so they mm-hmm. can't teach a whole group in a whole group setting. They're there to support students with who require additional services. So kids with IEPs or five hundred four. 
plans. Um, and yeah, go ahead. and in addition to that, there was recently um, some laws put in place. Uh, I would say about maybe five or six years ago, um, mm-hmm. that made it more mandatory for the lead teacher to be licensed. And so a lot of paras actually lost their lead teacher role um, when this law came to fruition. Yeah. Um, so these are teachers who have been used to being lead teachers for decades um, that have been kind of demoted into an assistant teacher of sorts. Um, so that can also through um, issues and complexities amongst a lead teacher who might be um, young enough to be their grandchild. <laughs> yes. Um, but exactly. has more um, authority or um, authority in the classroom. Yeah. And so even though that parent might have been teaching for 30 plus years. So it's not an ideal situation because when you get to that age where you've worked so long as a lead teacher and you're saying, I need to have the certification to become a lead teacher, I have to go back to school, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. like that's a huge, there's a difference of being like, oh, I'm in my 30s, I'm going to go back to school to I'm in my 60s and I've been a lead teacher since I've entered the teaching profession and now you're saying that I either need to go back to school yeah. or I have to work under a 24 year old yeah <laughs> which our, our paras uh, most of them were like under 30 but I, I've been in schools where I've seen the paraprofessionals who are like been been in the classroom for 25 years and so you see like me prancing or something <laughs> like yeah. us and they're looking crazy but that, yeah, so I I definitely felt a lot of pressure to as an outsider too, um, to really be a good representation for my kids. Also teach them you know about Black history, Black culture, bring in culturally relevant material um, to keep them engaged um, in the learning process. So yeah, it, it it's tough, but nothing I don't nothing prepared me for that experience. Wow. <laughs> One of the things that really stood out to me about the breadth of what you all were saying was that you can't be prepared for it. But even that's just in the classroom. <laughs> that's sad. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like what about outside of the classroom? How does that work in terms of? I've heard several teachers say I had to pay for materials, oh, or yes. I'm not paying. I'm not being paid enough. The the whole. I'm not sure if it even is a stereotype that teachers aren't paid enough money for what they do. How does the work then to live a normal life? And to also, <laughs> well, a, a quote-unquote nine-to-five oh, and no, be no, a teacher no, as well. No. There's, there's no such <laughs> thing as a nine-to-five no. as a teacher. Yeah, there, right. Yeah. There's no such thing. And um, for both of us, because you went to school as well. Yeah. Yeah, so both of us were in situations where we were teaching full-time and going to school to get our certifications. And then you got your... Master's. I didn't do the master's But Okay, so I did the certification. We did our certification our first year of teaching. So going to school after work and then after going to school, going home to do all the work you have to do for school the next day. It's crazy. Um, it's, it was just a lot. And then the next year I did uh, the master program. So it was just, there's not enough hours of the at, in the day to uh, be, <laughs> to be the educator you want to be. 
Um, you're always working. Even if you stay three hours after school to do work, to prep for the next day, you end up being at home in your pajamas on the couch, watching Scandal and preparing for something the next day more, yeah. further, because it's not good enough. Or there's just, you, you some people don't have assistant uh, teachers in their classrooms or pairs at all. And so they're doing work for a huge number of students on their own. So there's literally just no time to prep. Some people don't have prep times built into yeah. the days. It's, you're always, always working. Um, so that, it taught me a lot about work ethic. I don't think I ever knew. No. That I had the work ethic that I have. Like, that was a a huge test. I was like, oh, oh wow, I can actually uh, give my whole self and being <laughs> into something and operate on two plus hours a night. Yeah. Um, it was a hard, it took a long time for me to find that balance. I didn't go out uh, for a long time in the beginning because... When are you supposed to go out? What time? Where? What about the weekends? How's that? Uh, no. <laughs> so teaching is the hardest job in the world. I can honestly say that. And especially our first year when we're teaching. And I had to be at my job at 7.15 a.m. Um, and if I wanted to print that morning, I need to be there at 6.45 a.m. Um, so that and, and kids got out at 4.00. And we had to make sure they got out safely. So about 4.15. So I'm going from 7.15 to 4.15. Then you have meetings, grade level meetings to talk about what's going on, department meetings. So I taught, you know, the humanities, English language arts, we're talking, sharing materials, then after school programs. So three days a week, I was at school till like 6.30. Then I had to go to do my certification program. And that was another three hours. So time management, like... Those people can't handle just quit. It, you have to have good time management skills. Um, I'd say for me, I was giving a lot of myself to the point where it was unsustainable mm-hmm. because I didn't have, it was just hard. It was impossible to balance. It's like teaching, you're never done. There's always something to do. It's like, okay, I can let's plan for today, tomorrow, next week, the week after. Oh, let me grade all these papers. You're just never, there's always something to do. And it's like, there's no, I never felt satisfied. Like, oh, I finally got cut up. That just, there's, every time I did 10 things, there was another 50 things waiting for me to get to. Um, so whether it was the weekends, whether it was breaks, and I laugh when people say, well, you have summer off. You get winter break. I worked every winter mm-hmm. break. I worked every summer for a portion of it. Spring break, I was doing work. When I was on planes, when I was home in California, it didn't matter. Um, and as far as spending money, oh, yeah, spent lots of money on my students. Mm-hmm. Um, even if, not necessarily supplies, but, like, we were big about rewarding students for good behavior or grades and so I took my students to Sky Zone school and paid me for that and I didn't ask anyone's um, parents for money you know that which was wrong but I paid out of pocket for a lot of things whether it's food trips to here there um, whether it's like hanging out with my students outside of class yeah it gets expensive and teachers aren't paid nearly as much as they deserve to be Mm -hmm. like the hours I put in, when when I looked at my salary and divided by the hours I was working, I was making like two, like, two base maybe maybe you being generous, like I'll say like a dollar fifty. Yeah, <laughs> because it's just it's so much, and yeah, you're sitting at home, you're working, you're on a bus, train, fly, you're working. It's just it never stops, and I can't underestimate how 
low we are being paid because it's not like the movies or the television <laughs> shows like people have to pick up other jobs i i had to um tutor every night every night i had to tutor kids every weekend i had to tutor kids just to make ends meet because what i was being paid was not allowing me to be able to fit sufficiently pay my bills so i and i didn't i worked at a cbo so i didn't get uh breaks like other people got i didn't get spring break i didn't get winter mm-hmm. break i didn't get any breaks um so i'm working all the time not making enough money to pay my bills summertime i had to get another job so that i can be able to um pay my bills cuz people believe that you work oh 9 10 months you're you're 10 months you're supposed to be getting paid enough to be able to have float you over the summer i'm like why do you think summer school exists with so many teachers in it because they need to be able to pay their bills cuz they're not getting paid enough to float through for the summer yeah. um i always envy i'm like who are these these teachers who are going out on vacation out of the country in the summertime because I know I can't do it. I, I have to get, I have to work. Um, so it's not just like, oh, you get paid low and we just have to deal with it. No, you have to supplement your salary on a lot of cases to be able to, to make ends meet. Yeah, especially if you're single and not married. You'll see teachers... Ask your Uber drivers, like, are you a teacher? Uber, Lyft, Whole Foods, you see them all kinds mm-hmm. of summer jobs. Um, I was lucky enough I didn't have to work during this. Well, like, pick up an additional job, but I was preparing for that next year work-wise um, during those breaks. So yeah. It seems that there's so many things to being a teacher that go beyond the classroom, go beyond outside the classroom. Mm-hmm. And then you hear people say in a callous way, we need better teachers. We need more teachers. It seems that there is always going to be a divide between what we say we want from a teacher to what we actually need a teacher to be. And it seems like that specifically yeah. in the African-American community where we, there's always the call for more and better teachers. How does that work to well, be more like and better? I was not just a teacher. I was a parent, Ooh. a friend, mm. a counselor, mm. a therapist. Mm. Like, I, I, you ser- I was serving multiple, a nurse. Like, what, like, <laughs> there was just wow. so, a chauffeur, like, sometimes <laughs> we need to drive them around. Illegally. Because <laughs> we're not supposed to, like, have kids in our car, but yeah. if they don't have a way to get home, what do you do? Yeah, and I taught in Austin, what am I going to say, walk? Like, if yeah. a child tells me they can't walk, I'm going to assume, and I'm, that's, no, Mm-mm. I'm going to take them home. And so, to me, it's just crazy when people say, like, teachers don't do enough. Teachers... I've seen teachers just give their life, literally give their life um, to the point, like they said, they don't have a balance. And mm. while like I realized that was unsustainable and was going to work for me long term, there's just there's people who are in it for 10, 20 years and they sacrifice a lot for educating other people's children. So I think, you know, when I hear that state- statement, it makes me cringe because it's just, most people couldn't survive that job. Yeah, I will say, you know, not every teacher is a good teacher. Yes, so we do have teachers who should not be in teaching. Um, but so I'm going to yeah. say, yeah, that's real. Um, we There's yeah. a lot of schools and a lot of systems where we need better teachers. That's real. But you have to look at the system. What kind of environment are you providing for good teachers to stay? Exactly. So it's not about, oh, we need better teachers. Like, oh, no, we need to evaluate 
these networks, these systems, the way education is actually ran in these cities to see how is it sustainable? Mm-hmm. How, how are we supporting our, our teachers, not just salary-wise, but support for educating their kids? Are we making sure that there is a para in every classroom that needs a para? Are we really holding true to the ratio of students to uh, teachers? Are we making that environment uh, a pleasant, a one of sharing resources and trust? If we're not doing that, then you can't say, oh, we just need better teachers as that's the solution. No, that's a symptom, again, of the root of the issue is that you're not providing environments for good teachers to stay or good teachers to even go into teaching. Like, fix that. And then you'll have a, a better situation where you'll have more more uh, good teachers staying in the profession. But you can't make this call for all great teachers come to education and, and stay forever when you treat teachers like they are less than human. Yeah. Like the, the things that have come out of administrators' mouths to teachers, just like you wouldn't believe. You wouldn't believe. Mm. Exactly. What does the community need to know when they see teachers like you two were that are giving their all to the profession, to the classrooms? Because it always seems as though the teacher is like the adversary or the parent could be the adversary. Where <laughs> I want my kid to be smarter and brighter and, and little Johnny or, or, or little Stacy. These are random names. <laughs> yeah, I, I got I'm that. like, you mean Daquan? Like, like well, we got a little Johnny. Like, I'm like, I had Daquan, Darrell. Like. Why is Darrell smarter than my boy? He should be the smartest ever is. How can the community then embrace teachers more? It takes a village. Yeah. And so that's, there's a, like, complex again. Yes. Um... There are a lot of great things about the advancement in society and technology when it comes to education. I will say that. But there's also been um, parts of education that were held with higher esteem and value back in the day that actually did really help education. Um, One of being the teacher was a part of the family. Exactly. The teacher would come over and have dinner. The teacher knew the cousins, the aunts, the uncles, the twice-removed cousins, people coming in town. The teacher was a part of the community, lived right next door to one of her students or his students. There was no separation between the doors of the school and the community or the doors of the school and the door of a home. Um, And because of that, uh, you didn't have so many behavioral issues mm-hmm. because uh, the kids knew, I know your mama. And you're not going to come in here and act like this because your mama and I, we're cool. We're thick as thieves. And we will make sure that this is not something that is going to happen at home or in this classroom. Um, it's not like that anymore. Um, a lot of teachers are driving into their communities to teach. And... Uh, I don't think we really address how what that's actually stating to those com- the community you serve um, and those students. Because if you are living on the nor- north side in Lakeview and you're teaching on the far south side and you're driving there this mo- every morning and you're saying that it's only good enough for me to be here to collect a paycheck or to be a savior in some way and drive back to my pretty nice white neighborhood in Lakeview, Mm -hmm. 
that family's not going to trust you. You're not going to be a part of their homes, their 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 families, their the cookouts. You're not going to be able to forge those relationships that actually are so necessary to do the deep educating that you're going to need to do because like Jade said, a lot of these students are way far behind. So you need to have a trust with that that parent to be like, "Hey, your child is really far behind and we need to work together to get them to the next level. You can't have that conversation with somebody who doesn't trust you. If you're not embedded into that family, you're not embedded into that community, you're not you're not invested in the way that you need to be to be able to do that work. And back in the day, it was just common knowledge. Everybody knew that's what you had to do. It was no one even thought of like mm-hmm. it was just this is what you are. You are an all-encompassing teacher. You are teaching on the weekends when you see kids. Oh, you need a book. You're coming outside and giving paper and pencil. Like that's how it used to be. My grandmother was a teacher for 20 over 25 plus years in Brooklyn, New York, and she was everybody's teacher. She was a teacher of random students, r- random kids on the block, down the street. Like she knew everybody. Yeah. And um I thought going to the teaching world that was that's what it was going to be like. Um but we've lost that. We've yeah. lost our way with technology and advances and other realms of education we've lost our way that it's a it's a village yeah I think Chanel brings up a lot of things that remind me of like my family so my mom would always tell me like and my mom grew up in Los Angeles in the 1960s and 70s and like if she acted up in school the teacher like her mom knew when she got home and not only did my grandma beat her, the neighbors beat her. It literally was a village educating. Beats, yeah. <laughs> oh, beat, like, belts, like, oh, you acting up in class? Like, you couldn't do that. Like, now, corporal punishment is illegal. It's, no, actually, corporal, <laughs> like, punish, I mean, corporal well, punishment is legal in Illinois. That's another yeah, issue. Yeah. Is that some wh- no, no, that's, an, that's another issue, is that some white teachers coming into this community not knowing the difference between child abuse and corporal punishment. Yeah. There is a difference, and you need to educate yourself yeah. in the difference. You need to educate yourself in the mm-hmm. culture, because people are calling DCFS on good parents who yeah. are trying to make sure that their kids are successful. Uh, corporal punishment, beating your ch- child, or I would say a different word, like <laughs> yeah. spanking your child, yeah. is came from white people because African-Americans coming here from slaves had to beat their children so they wouldn't get like whipped or killed by their master. Like, I'm going to spank you now so you don't have to get whipped by the master later. So you know not to steal this or, or talk in this tone or do all this so that our master doesn't whip you or kill you. And that's the same mindset that they still have to do now because a cop... A, a bad cop could kill you. Not all cops are bad, but there's some bad cops that will kill you if you get a, di- a, a wrong turn, a tone at somebody. Yeah. Or you do something at, at school, you do the wrong tone, you do the wrong thing, you could get in yeah. that class that we talked about. Mm-hmm. So, like, spanking and, yeah. and beating, she means yeah. spanking. Yeah, I just want to differentiate. It, it's like. it's, a, it's a very different. And yeah. you need to know, if you are in the state of Illinois and it's legal, you need to know the difference between child-rearing and abuse. Yeah. So there was a village supporting my mom and my aunts and uncles when they were being educated. And same thing for me. Let let a teacher call my house. It was on. <laughs> so um, it, it it's different. Um, I think now, I don't know if it's because the parents are younger or whatnot. Uh, I think to answer your question, I definitely tried to build a relationship with each of my parents. It's That's not always uh, easy. Um, yeah, it, sometimes the parents aren't in the picture. 
or yeah, because they're incarcerated or they're working long hours or maybe they're being raised by grandma or auntie or something. So I always try to build a relationship with the parent or guardian, but teachers are not your adversaries. And I think um, schools can do a better job of building community within schools and also reaching out and working with community-based organizations so they are a part of the community. I think it, it, it does say something that you do have a ton, especially in the education reform space, um, teachers from outside the community um, coming into these communities just to teach. And I was like on Instagram the other day and I saw this post. It was like, funny, you get all these uh, white teachers driving to the hood to teach uh, the same people that if they lived in their neighborhood, they would say it's a bad neighborhood. And I'm like, oh, I didn't think of it like yeah. that. Um, and so you have, it, it, I think it's really important for teachers to be a part of the community. If you don't live in the community, okay. Again, join some community-based organizations. See if you can organize and advocate on behalf of your students um, and represent them, participate in events, whether that's like uh, like a summer cook-off or a 5K. Just be in the community, show face. Don't just come there to collect a paycheck and leave. I think there, it, there's work to be done on both sides, um, from the administrative school side, the teacher side, and also the parents to build a stronger network to support kids. One of the things that I would be remiss if I didn't mention is what is the role or what would you like to see from African-American male teachers? Because it seems to be an extreme dirt. <laughs> a quick story for me is that I had to think about I went to school in Beachwood, Ohio, um, Cuyahoga County, and I don't recall seeing any male teachers, any black male teachers, and then I went to a high school in Shelby County and um, Houston High School in Memphis, Tennessee, a suburb of Memphis. And I recall maybe seeing one. So I, yeah. so I think throughout my academic career, what well, I take that back. In Cleveland, I saw one black teacher. He taught Woodshop at Beachwood Middle. And I can't remember a second. And yeah. so I was thinking about that, just through this dialogue of you two are fantastic young women. But where are the black male teachers? And I noticed that even when I try to mentor our whole classes with after school matters is that they're so surprised to see me there. I'm like, oh, I'm just like a black teacher, black yeah. male teacher. What role do you need to see from black male teachers? Are there enough for them at all? How's that work? No. And you have to ask why. Why? Why do you think there are not a lot of black male teachers? And you have to think to all how we're educating our black males in the system if you have a traumatic and terrible education experience, why would you want to go back into that role and work? Why would that be your career? Like, it makes sense to me. And so when I'm thinking about that, that's why there's just a lot of pressure on, te on teachers in general, especially being an African-American woman teaching in a low-income neighborhood. I, I, I'm like, I don't, <laughs> like, it's just, it's just a lot of pressure. I'm thinking like, I don't want to ruin your education experience. I don't want you to think education is a punishment. And I also would ask the question, like, why don't we, ha we barely have any black females, let alone black males. And then I, I thought about the why and like, well, education for so many of our black males is terrible and traumatic. So why would you want to come back and teach? Mm. Black yeah. males make up less than 2% of the teaching force. In the United States? Yeah. I w and I don't less even know what the Chicago is probably. percent of the teaching force are black males. And that doesn't even account for the length and time that black males actually stay in teaching. Yeah. Um, it's not their fault. It isn't. The system is designed for them not to be successful. 
America has a problem with black men in general? Do you think a system that is ran and dominated by white people is going to allow black males males to be successful in it? No. It's rigged from the jump. And so we have to acknowledge that and then fiercely, fiercely uh, change it. Change it. School by school. Because it's not going to be one big thing, one big brush, mm-hmm. a stroke of a brush that's going to change it. It has to be school by school, just like with integration. School by school, district by district. That's what we got to do. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's another thing that I feel like, oh, man, another thing that black women have to put on their back because we put a lot on our back. Um, especially for advocating our bl- for our black men, but it's another thing that black women who are in education they got they got to put on their back too. They you know if you're in a hiring position, if you're in a mm-hmm. room with your principal and they're looking to hire, you need to make some suggestions for some black teachers, black male teachers. You don't know any black male teachers, then shame on you. <laughs> if you are a black female. Uh, teacher and you don't know any black male teachers then you are not embedded in education the way you think you are because yeah there's less than two percent but they're out there you you don't know any college students who are looking to figure out what they want to do uh you need to be in teaching you there's so much more things you can do outside of the classroom to to make this more of a sustainable environment for teach for black male teachers Um, i don't blame them at all I, i blame the system um, and it's not just the recruitment process, like I said, it's it's the whole thing. So once they get into your school, how are you going to advocate for them? How are you going to make sure it's sustainable? Um, yeah. People, it, administrators like to take teachers' voices away. There's so much that's already been taken away from the black male. And, you're, and Jade had a very, very strong point talking about like if they have already been uh, jaded by <laughs> exactly. uh, the the education system, why would they want to teach? So they have that on top of the level of being in the school and having your administrator try to take their voice away. Because that's what administrators do to white, brown, Asian, black yeah. teachers all the time. And so a black male who's already have so many things stacked against them, so many things taken away from them, and they're just trying to educate kids. They're just trying to do what's right. And another layer. Mm. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, I asked that question and then I really thought about it. I'm like, well, you know, m- most of them and our good portion of black males are labeled as special needs, even if they're not challenging. And so I have to think, you know, the ones who make it out of the experience and go to college, like, why would you want to come back here? Um, and even how are we recruiting um, black males to come mm. back into education? I feel like when organizations or people in higher education are thinking about teachers they're 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 not thinking black males Mm. and so uh, when I see black males I'm like thank you (laughs) thank you for doing this work it's important you need to be here but yeah if you look at retention and how many of them stay that's probably the turnover there is probably ridiculous 
And then if you think about financial support and salaries, it's like, are we paying? These are, <laughs> how much are you paying providers. teachers? Yeah, These you, you can't. A lot, a lot of yeah. time providers. And, yeah. you know, I know we're progressive and, you know, mm-hmm. women provide for their family yeah. too. But there's also this still, this uh, pressure on men, men to, to be providers. Yeah. And if we are not <laughs> paying salaries that are, that are, that, that are, giving them the ability to be providers, then they're going to go elsewhere as well. Um, uh, Principal uh, Chris Goins from Butler College Prep is someone here in Chicago that that I know takes this very seriously. Mm -hmm. Uh, He knows that he can't just leave it open online and be like, apply here, and he's going to get all these great black male teachers. He knows he has to <clears throat> reach out to community organizations like Jade says. Mm-hmm. He works with an organization called Profound Gentlemen and they have these these big conferences where black edu- black male educators come and interview for schools across the country and he makes it his business to be there every year. He brings other black male teachers that he employs to come and help him. He goes out into the community. He, he really makes sure that his school is reflective of the students because you're not just teaching black girls or um, Hispanic girls, you're also ta- you're teach or Asian girls or whatever. You're also teaching black boys. So you're saying that teachers need to be reflective of their students. Then you need to have black males there too, mm-hmm. and especially when you're thinking about all the black boys that are coming from single parent homes, want a single mother who may not have, may not be lucky enough to have an uncle or grandpa or a cousin who has stepped into that role and really trying to figure out what a man is supposed to be in college and I mean in high school and there's nobody who's reflective of them there where do, where do they seek guidance exactly. where where do they look at a mirror where do they they get the expectations of what they should be like if no one's there and this is not for all but this is a for a, a huge portion and they're being ignored and they're being ignored because if they weren't then it would have been changed a long time ago well, thank you so much for your time, ladies. Do you have any final thoughts or final um, ideas that to share? <laughs> I mean, we covered a lot of ground. Yeah, those were tough questions. But no, I, I again, teaching is the hardest job mm. out there. And I, I don't say that lightly. I, it, it, it was the most challenging yet rewarding experience of my life. And so... Although we talked a lot about the issues, I do want people to know it is an amazing, rewarding profession, and we need more great teachers, passionate teachers, teachers who want to work in um, historically uh, disadvantaged communities. And so I hope this podcast has been more (laughs) motivating than discouraging. Yeah, I mean, teaching changed my life forever. Exactly. Forever. And I am actually now the godmother of one of my students. Shout out to you, Anthony. Um, And that happened because of teaching. That That happened because you can't help but be completely enveloped in these beautiful souls that you're educating every day. And uh, even though, like, Jade and I both have left the profession for now, um, I know that we both, we both mm-hmm. wouldn't change the fact that we were teachers. Um, I wouldn't be able to be an effective community organizer exactly. uh, if, I, if I hadn't taught. I wouldn't have been able to be 
as I think I am, um, a more well-rounded citizen in my community um, if it wasn't for teaching. And those, just think about it. Like, even if you don't have kids now, okay. maybe you will have kids, right? And you, those kids are going to have to be educated by yeah good people, by people who are invested, by people who care about uh, your child. And so don't think, oh, I don't have kids, so it doesn't matter, <laughs> or I don't have to get involved, or I don't need to know about education, because one day you might. Or you and even taxes. if you don't, or yeah, or, okay. even, you, or <laughs> even if you don't have kids, these kids are going to grow up to be your neighbors, your doctors, exactly. your lawyers, your, your presidents. So mm. take a look yeah into education in your communities and pay attention and get mm-hmm. involved, get involved in your local school. Um, whether it's a, you know, whether you're on the council or, or whether you're just volunteering on the weekends, care about education, care about the kids in your community and how they're being educated. Cause those are the kids in your community. Exactly. Um, and so I think there needs to be into these silos there's so many mm-hmm. silos teachers in a silo um, schools in a silo uh, single people and communities are in a silo and it's like no 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 we all have to live in this world in this country and these communities together yeah. and so working in silos are, it's not good for the kids it's not good for the community yeah and I feel like once you're a teacher you're always a teacher mm. like it I still talk to my students and their parents and I'm going to their graduations and this event and still hanging out with them, still spending money on them. It's crazy. I'm like, <laughs> wait a minute. Um, but yeah, as an organizer, I'm advocating on behalf of my students and their families. Like just in Springfield yesterday at the uh, Fix the Formula rally. Like mm-hmm. it never stops. And so like one thing I would love to see of my fellow Chicagoans is to see them um, more um, involved in some of the issues and show like acting on these issues because there's a lot of there's a lot of issues in Chicago with regards to like again we could do a whole nother podcast on that um but I think if we get together parents teachers administrators we could we have a lot of power um to advocate and push for the changes that we need to ensure that you know all Chicago students have access to quality education and good air quote teachers um and to see them reach their goals. So, and there needs to be more context given to what an advocate is. Mm-hmm. Um, we have parents who think that advocates are just being in the school and knowing the teachers and knowing what your child's getting on tests and, and homework. That is a layer of it, very important. But also being a parent advocate is knowing who your legislators are, mm-hmm. who your elected officials are. Um, coming, like I had, I took uh, two sets of parents, uh, six parents last week and five parents this week to Springfield to speak with their legislators, to talk to them about issues that they see in a community, resources that their school needs, knowing the name of bills that affect exactly. them and saying, hey, you should vote yes or no on this because it affects me and I'm going to tell you how it affects me. That's important. Being I am a voting constituent of yours and this is what I believe is the right vote for 
for my child. That matters. And so you have to realize that all of these things are going to set your child up for success. And so we just need to broaden and be more specific at the same time about what an advocate does um, or is. And that's not just on parents. Teachers should be doing this too. Exactly. Principals should be doing this too. You know, um, it should be the whole community. People who don't have kids should be doing this too. Um, We all should be advocates. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's not just the teacher. It really takes a village. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time and thank you for this edition. We're so glad to have you both here. And please, if you have anything else to share, we can come back and revisit this conversation. Mm -hmm. I see there's a lot more to be said. So thank you. Yes. (laughs) Not enough time. Thank you so much for your time, ladies. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. No problem.